0: Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ Podcast. Please enjoy the following study. We can get started. Welcome everyone. Thank you for the song service. Uh, Brother Jordan, thank you the other Jordan for great communion service. Thank you, Brother uh, Rowe for your great reading, and we're going to talk about the Church of Pergamus. If you didn't know already, that's what we're going to be discussing for a little bit here. We're going to realize, and that's found in Revelations chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to follow along. You'll, we're going to discover that the church family there at Pergamos was battling false doctrine and Satan's attempt to get them to compromise the very name of Jesus and his faith. So we're going to embark on a discussion on what that looked like for them and what kind of impact that have on, has on us. Now, one question that came to my mind as I was uh, studying this is, why these seven? Weren't there other churches in Asia? Well, of course there were. Troas, Acts chapter 20, 5 through 12. And I believe if you're looking at the map, I think Troas is going to be right in that area there. Or it could be up in there. Somewhere up in that area there. You had Troas. You had Colossae, the Colossae church. And then you had Heropolis, Colossians 4, verse 13. Colossae and all those around this area right in there, near Laodicea. So there are other churches. So why write just to these seven churches of Asia? Well, I think because of several reasons. One in particular, there was a thread... That Jesus wanted us to see and that thread at least for me and something for you to consider is that during this time that thread was the culture challenged by the Church of the Roman Empire um, so in our case today it would be the worldly uh, culture America culture if quite frank with you that's a, a very open and wide and sexually free society And uh, there's always great temptation to pull us in and get us to compromise our faith just a little bit. Plus seven signifies God's perfect plan, His completeness of work. You know, six days He created and the seventh day He rested. So there was this idea in that number seven symbolizing a complete work of God. And so I think here... It's because it symbolizes all churches everywhere for all time. And for me, what that means is that the things that they were facing and the principles uh, that guided them or didn't guide them and the mistakes that they made and the attempt by Satan to woo Christians to compromise their faith would be similar to the same problems that we would have. And are facing the culture which we live in today. So, what about Pergamus? What about this city? It was rich. It was powerful. Uh, if you look over here, it was not too far from the from the Aegean Sea, about 16 miles, I believe, if I remember correctly. And this city was given the status of metropolis, and it received a special honored title. Uh, Neo, I think it's described as neocorate. Neocorate, I think that's the correct way. Neocorate. What is that exactly? Well, it's a rank and dignity granted by the Roman Senate and Emperor to a city which had built temples to emperors and to pagan gods. And um, Ephesus and Pergamus. Jesus wrote the first letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus and Pergamos were the two cities that received this great honor. And um, in fact, Pergamos was created and designed specifically to become a second Athens. In other words, it was to be the cultural and artistic hub of the Greek world. The word Pergamos literally means... Fortified, a fortified city, height, elevation. And uh, it was a flourishing center of production of parchment. That was an interesting find for me. And it had a library with over 200,000 scrolls in the library, second only to the library in Alexandria. In fact, Mark Antony gave this library here in Pergamus as a gift to Cleopatra. Interesting thing there. Decided at one time in its heyday, it was over 200,000 people living in this area. It had an amphitheater, racetrack, gymnasium. It had the best medical care for its gladiators. Uh, the great physician uh, Galen was there, and he mended the gladiators. Um, there was a Roman theater, 10,000 seat seat seated 10,000 people. And folks, it was the steepest seating arrangement that you would ever find, and your nose would definitely bleed in that area. And I'll show it to you here real quick. See it? How would you like to watch a... Gladiator fight way up here. That would be hilarious, wouldn't it? That would be something right there. Among its massive temples to various gods, there was a towering monument, a structure, an altar to Zeus. Zeus, of course, was called the god of all gods. And um, it is said... That they kept the altar burning twenty four seven and that altar would have sat right in this area right here, if you can see well let's see if I have a copy of it, so we get a better idea of that it was set on top of a mountain area, looking down into the city, the lower city area here. this was called the Royal. The royal level right in this area. This is where all your temples alter to Zeus. So this is what we find when we turn to to, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Speaking of the power of Christ and his magnificent and fantastic word. Make no mistake about it. It is talking about the power of His Word. And we remember that power, do we not? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the power of Christ's Word. That's the power. They are spirit and they are life. Make no mistake about it. And when he renders judgment with his sword, you better believe there's judgment being rendered there. So we continue on. I know your works. In verse 13. I have this on board. In fact, that's an artist's rendition of how it looked back in the day. And uh, that is where the altar of Zeus was. Various temples to gods. That is the Roman theater right in that area. So that's how the kind of the rendition. It's hard to see. So there you go. There's the uh, scriptures if you want to read along on that. So, verse 13. I know your works. In almost every case in these letters to the church of churches of Asia, Jesus would include this statement. I know your works. He knows. Just get that for a moment. He knows everything this church is about. He knows everything that it does. He knows everything that it is. Everything that we do and why we do it, He knows it. We can't hide. We need to be true and right and open and take care of our sin problems every hour of every day, folks, as we're going to learn here. He says, I know your works, And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How would you like to have the place that you're living called where Satan's throne is? Wouldn't be very inviting. Wouldn't be very encouraging. But that is exactly what they were facing. It was that hostile environment, that oppressive, satanic atmosphere and Jesus called it right. It was where they dwelled, where Satan's throne is. In face of compromise, one face, this hostile atmosphere, this oppressive satanic. And there were some who resisted. And he continues on, and you hold fast to my name. So the church family there at Pergamus was doing a fantastic job of holding fast to the name of Christ. You did not deny my faith. We're going to kind of... I want you to underline that phrase, my faith. I found that very interesting. My faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now folks, we don't live in that kind of hostile environment where someone here in our congregation, died because they resisted false doctrine. Because they were resisting the attempts of other people to encourage them and to compromise. And yet, that is what we find. Antipas, that word literally means against all odds. How about that? That's pretty clear as to what his life was. Imagine that. My faithful martyr. You know what we know about Antipas? Exactly what it says there. That's what we know. Everything else I'm going to tell you is pure speculation. So let's just keep with the Word of God. Amen? And he says very simply, Jesus does, Antipas was my faithful martyr. You know what the word martyr means? It's interesting. It means to be a witness. And that witness is... Simply this. This is true and I know it. And what is true? And what does he know? What did Antipas know that he was willing to give his life for? The power of Christ. That's what he knew. The death and burial and resurrection. That's what was true. It changed his life. And I find it very fascinating That to me, he wasn't resisting because he wanted to die. He was resisting because he wanted to live. Live a life in Christ. To live in freedom in Christ. To live because of the name of Jesus. And the power that the blood of Jesus gave him. Against all odds, here was a church family who is doing a fantastic job holding fast to my name. That gives me the idea of if you're in an airplane and you're flying, and the next thing you know, the pilot says, hey, we're going down, grab a hold of your your parachute. And you know what you're going to do with that? You're not going to put it on, right? No, you're going to put it on. And you know what you're going to do when you jump out that plane as it crashes? You know what? You're going to hold on for dear life. You're not going to let that parachute go. They held fast. They were not letting go of the name of Jesus. They did not deny my faith. I found that interesting. My faith. It's that system of faith that Jude verse 3 talks about. Contending earnestly for the what? Faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. It was that faith that he was willing to live for. It was that faith that he was resisting. All other attempts to compromise their faith in that. It is that system, that gospel of grace, the good news found in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. First Corinthians fifteen one and 4. It's His faith. Whose faith? Christ's faith. Because it belongs to Him and Him alone. It's not subjective, it's objective. The reason I say that is because our feelings ebb and flow. The level of persecution comes and goes. Our suffering comes and goes. Sometimes it may be extreme, sometimes it may not. And yet, The beautiful, objective message of Christ remains firm and sure and concrete. You see, his faith, it says it that way because it belongs to Jesus. We are the ones who do not deny it. We are the ones who will hold on to it. We are the ones to live his way, his will, by his word. Colossians chapter 1, I find this very interesting. Colossians chapter 1, which really would have struck at the very heart of this idea that the Roman Empire was forcing all of its citizens to burn incense for the Lord Caesar. Here was Colossians chapter 1, this letter that I'm sure that the church at Pergamos would have heard and read, just like what we're doing today. Beginning in verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if Indeed, you continue in the what? If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Underline that first part of verse 23. Continuing in the faith, grounded, steadfast, That's what keeps us going. Even when things around us are in chaos. We are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And that's what this early church here in Pergamos were doing and standing firm on the cause of Jesus and His name. Amen? So what were they fighting Well, Jesus begins by saying something in verse 14, by saying, I have a few things against you. A few things, which indicates to me that a few things can trip us up. A few things, if we're not careful, can cause us to go in a direction that we do not want to go. A few things, a little leaven leaveth the whole up, Right? A few things that Jesus says, if we're not careful, before you know it, we'll start living for us instead of living for Christ. And what were those things that they were needing to fight against? Well, let's read in verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Let's start with the one that we really don't know anything about hardly. That is the Nicolaitans. It's interesting to me that that Jesus lumps this doctrine in with the doctrine of Balak. So, that means something. But the other thing that it means as well is that he uses this phrase, which thing I hate. Now, when that comes from Jesus, that means something. So, what was it about the Nicolaitans? Well, there were two things that I found in commentaries. One of them was that it comes from the uh, Nicolaitans, comes from the word Nicholas. And uh, it, um, it, they surmise that it's the same name that we find of the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. And they theorize that it's possible that he fell away from grace, that his faith was compromised, and now he's trying to lure other people and woo them in to paganistic worship. I don't think that's that's it. And then another meaning was that it comes from the word Nicola, which means let us eat. So it really wasn't from one man, but it was an idea, a life principle. Basically, worldly pursuits, serving self, gratifying self at any way possible. Regardless of what we think, Clement of Alexandria said this, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. And God says, which thing I hate. That word hate, pretty powerful word by God, by Jesus. It means to pursue with hatred. Imagine that. So in my mind, it means to be abhorrent. An abomination is what we Find sometimes Proverbs chapter six, sixteen through nineteen, or like what Paul said in Romans chapter eight and verse seven, the carnal mind is what? Enmity against God. That is, it's hostile, in opposition, repulsive. And that's what that doctrine was. And the church family was fighting against that kind of doctrine and against the doctrine of Balaam. So what do we know about Balaam? Well, the word stumbling block here literally means a trap or bait. And this all comes out of Numbers chapter 22 and Numbers chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 31. All of these information that I'm going to summarize to you. The children of Israel had come to the border of Moab, and Balak was concerned, and he ought to be. And he said, hey, Balaam, how about cursing the children of Israel? Please, I'm desperate. Oh, by the way, I'll give you some material possessions. I'll give you a little bit of money. But poor old Balaam tried to curse, and every time he tried to curse the children of Israel, a blessing came out. Imagine trying to curse somebody. Imagine me, Jordan, trying to, well, Jordan, me trying to curse you, and every time I try to curse it, I love you. <laughs> I, I, I bless you. I, I love you. That would be frustrating. And it was. Poor old man. And he got to the point where basically he'd come up with this idea, well, I can't defeat them by cursing them, but I can do this. I can tell you how to do it allow the men of the children of Israel to mingle with the daughters of Moab and entice them into lascivious worship. That's how it can be done. So he changed his tactics. and I think it's in Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16. Look, Moses said, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. It was by the count. So there were literally people in the congregation of Pergamos that were a stumbling block to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that something? Isn't that unbelievable? Well, not really. But just think about it. Stumbling block, eat things sacrificed to idols, commit sexual immorality. Think about what the families dealt with in Pergamus every day of their lives. They walk outdoor, and guess what they saw? They looked up here in this mountain and they saw all those monstrous temples. They saw that stinking fire of that altar burning. And you know, all they wanted to do was live. So they began begin to think perhaps that, well, maybe maybe it wouldn't hurt for me to go up there and burn a little incense to Caesar and say, Lord Caesar, God knows that I don't mean it. But it'll improve my life and make my life easier. Right? And then the next thing you know, you go from that to, well, I'm going to go eat foods offered on the sacrifice or altars to God. I'm just going to eat a little bit of food. I'm just going to go in that temple and eat some foods that were sacrificed to certain pagan gods. that would be all right. That'd be cool. I won't mean it. And then the next thing you know, they had the door of the temple of prostitutes. Committing sexual immorality. How did you go from just burning a little incense to Lord Caesar to committing sexual immorality? A little leaven leaveth the whole lump. That's how. You see, it erodes our faith little by little by little. And it can lead me to making even bigger compromise. And I began to serve Jesus less and less in my life. Do I defend? Do I deny? The Lord says fight! Some in Pergamus church family were a stumbling block. What about you? Jordan, are you a stumbling block to your fellow brothers and sisters here? Mark? Craig? Kelly? Are you a stumbling block? Are you a stepping stone? Some in Pergamos were stumbling blocks. But you know what Jesus says in verse sixteen? Repent. That great call to turn, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I think if you look up that word "sword," you look at it, that. That sword was literally—I mean, whew, your head would roll. Judgment rendered. What proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus? says the sword. You know what proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus? His will, His way, His truth, His word. And whenever we run into compromise, when we run into false doctrine, you know what? His word will reveal it. His word will defend it. And it's ironic that in Numbers chapter 31 verse 8, with the kings of Midian, Balaam would die by the sword. It's fitting in this letter that he would die by sword. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What is he talking about? This hidden manna, white stone with the name written that no one knows but him who receives it. What is he talking about? I think in context what he's talking about here is God has provisions for the believer, for the follower, that the world cannot see. Nor do they understand. What chance did these Christians have? Just think about it. These poor, who knows how many Christians in Pergamus. what chance did they have against the almighty power of the Roman gods and the Roman Empire? What chance did they have? Being hard pressed on every side. Oppressive conditions that Jesus would refer to as where Satan dwells, where his throne is. And well, I think by manna, he's talking about being sustained by Christ himself. Amen. John chapter 6. If you give me a little time here, let me read this. John chapter 6 in verse 47. I am the bread of life. Verse 48, Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. In verse 57, he says, as the living father sent me, and I live because of Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate in the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. In verse 61, it says that they were offended. And Jesus said, does this offend you? Verse 63, he adds this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are alive. That is worth understanding. That is worth knowing that we are sustained by Christ. And so, Well, what about the white stone? Well, there are two sources that I came across. They were, One of them was that it was customary to judge the accused criminal with a black and white stone. Well, if you received the black stone, it was over. If you received the white stone, you were set free. Liberty. And pre- pretty much the idea there is that no matter what the world does to you, no matter what they say about you, in the eyes of Christ, you are not guilty You have been cleansed. You are of the redeemed. Amen. The second idea that I came across was this. That gladiators who were victorious received a very special white stone indicating entry into a special ceremony or celebration. Only those who received that white stone could attend. And what does it say about Christians, Paul does in Romans chapter 8? That we are more than conquerors. If God is for us, who could be against us? And the promise here by Jesus is very simple. I will attend to you. I will comfort you. I will guide you and help you walk through the valley of the shadow of death where you will fear no evil. That is something worthy. And important and crucial to be assured with. Right? Amen? The confidence that God has provisions that the world cannot see nor understand. What does all this really mean? This letter. What does it all really mean? Well, To me it means that faithfulness is possible wherever you live. Wherever you dwell. Well, somebody may be wondering what if the place that I live is where Satan dwells? Is exactly what Jesus is talking about to the church at Pergamus, where his throne is. What what what, brother Bruce, if I live in a hostile environment? My job is hostile. The city in which I live is evil the family members that I have, I feel nothing but hostility. The truth rings true in this letter. You can be faithful even in those circumstances. And we need to remember what Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 23 that we continue in the faith grounded, steadfast and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. The message is yours. Maybe you have allowed others to dictate to you the assurance of your salvation. You being rooted and grounded in the faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not so sure about those things. Well, Jesus wants to give you comfort here, He wants to give you and help you and sustain you. And give you purpose and meaning. He wants you to know that only in Him can you truly be a conqueror. Will you trust Him? Will you have faith in Him? Will you defend Him? Are you a stumbling block? You need to answer those questions as we stand and sing these songs. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.